I hope you're ready for some Bible study, because I am. Hey, everybody, welcome into the Deep Dive Bible Study. We are in the home office tonight on Wednesday night, as usual. And if you want to hit the subscribe and the like and the notification bell buttons, that would be very appreciated. My name is Tim. Welcome in to youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. I'm excited to get into today's content. Deep Dive Bible Study Torah, the Law of Life, Part 7, where we are going to spend an entire episode talking about one of the Ten Commandments, and it's the last commandment, and there's a big reason why we're doing one whole episode on that commandment, because that commandment is tied to all the other commandments. We're going to talk about that today, and we're going to deal with the big stain of covetousness on our hearts. You're in for a treat, though. Trust me. Don't take this one negatively. This is a positive word, as God's word always is. Let's get started. presents Torah, the law of life. Okay, let's go to the text, the Bible text. Uh, that's where it all begins, ladies and gentlemen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is in your neighbors, or that is your neighbors. And Deuteronomy 5.21 is basically the same with a slight deviation. I don't know if you can see it there. It says, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, which is another word for covetousness or coveting. Uh, so this is the last of 10 commandments. God has been speaking through Moses to the people on the mountain. Uh, he is unpacking for them what they will live like on the heels of their deliverance from Egypt and from slavery. Now God is dealing with their attitude, their behavior. This is what you want to do. Now, Dennis Prager makes a great point about this commandment, and I appreciate Dennis Prager's insights into the Bible. He is an Orthodox Jew. He is a very faithful Jew. He is not a Christian, but he is a very wise interpreter of the Torah. And so I have used him as a resource for this content. And uh, you can go and look up his uh, PragerU video on coveting. But what he says in that video is very important. He says, this is the only commandment that has to do with thought, not action. And that is somewhat true, although I would make the argument that the first commandment has to do with thought. But the last commandment is not, you aren't physically killing or stealing or committing adultery, but you are thinking about it. You are, you are building an attitude to perform one of those other sins, right? That's what coveting is. It is the, and, and he says this in his video, which I didn't check. So I'm just taking his word for it that out of the 613 laws of the Torah, this is the only one that deals with thought. And that's big. I'm going to take his word for it. I'm going to trust him. He's a pretty honorable guy. Uh, so I'm going to think about this as pretty reliable, a, a pretty reliable source. Yeah, this is the one that deals with how you think. All the other ones are dealing with how you act. So it's a big one. And tonight, I, I just feel in my spirit that I need to say this. Tonight's going to be positive. I know I already said it once, but I'm going to say it again. It's going to be positive. We're going to see some people set free. Raise your hand, praise hands in the comments if you want to be set free. Because if you get freed from covetousness, you get freed from breaking a lot of your life and other people's lives. You get freed from destroying your mind and obsessing about others and you get joy and you get uh, happiness and you get contentment. That's the fruit of this study, which I believe will be where we go. So I want to give you the heads up as to what we're doing tonight. The whole shebang. This is the outline. Coveting what it is. We're going to look at that. Number two, what it is not, because a lot of people think they're coveting and they're not. And we're going to talk about what that means. Number three, what does it look like when we covet? We're going to look at some biblical examples there. Number four, where does it start? How do we get to a covetous attitude? And number five, what does it do to us? I think we got to look at that because it's huge. And there are some things that I was given in this study prep that I had never seen before in the biblical text. You are not going to want to miss 
that content. And then number six, of course, we don't want you to talk. We don't want to just talk about all the bad. We want to talk about how do we overcome covetousness. So with that in mind, let's deal with number one. What is it? Now, coveting is a uh, a dark word. We don't even like to say say like say one of those words in the Bible that you don't even like to say, right? Like abomination. I don't like to say that word either, right? There's a lot of biblical words that are just dark in their in their name. You know, give me a couple comments in the in the comment section if you can think of a word in the Bible that you think, man, that just is a dark word. I don't even like to say it. Um, loins is a dark word. <laughs> There's a lot of places where the King James version talks about your loins, right? But coveting is a, a word that's dark and it just kind of comes across as a very caustic topic. But what if I told you, and this is the thing, that if you can get this, this thing locked down in your life, and by locked down, I mean out of your life, it will lead to a happier existence. It will lead to a more peaceful existence. Hey, it'll lead to a depression-free, anxiety-free life. It will lead to a beautiful life because I think that's what the law is intended to do. We've called this study Torah, the law of life, and that is exactly what it is. It is the law of life. It is God telling us, here's what's going to lead to life and here's what's not. Here's what's going to kill you. So what does it mean to covet? Let's talk about that. Number one, the word in Hebrew is kamad and it means to desire, yearn for, covet, lust after someone or something uh, specifically uh, for the use of one's own gratification. You are not just wanting things. You are wanting things for your self-centered gratification. And you are wanting other people's things. Uh, secondly, this is an inward, not outward deal. Okay, so you covet inwardly, but then you steal outwardly. You covet inwardly, you commit adultery outwardly. You covet inwardly, so you lie, bear false witness outwardly. So this is... Again, we're going to talk about this, the law that deals with thought and how it relates to the first commandment, which is an amazing um, correlation that God has embedded into the Ten Commandments. Even their order, the list is important. The order of the list is important. And so this is an inward, not an outward commandment, and it has a corollary to the first commandment. And then coveting is the seed of uh, bad behavior. Let me get myself out of the way here. Bad behavior toward our neighbor. It's the seed. It's where, we, it's where it begins. So before you even think about all those other sins that you're going to commit, this is the one that starts it all. So we're going to look also tonight at what, well, before we get any further, let me do this on the screen, the parallel of the first and the last commandment. So you have 10 commandments in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter five. First one, you shall have no other God before me. I come first and notice the phrase that God uses here, not by accident, but this phrase of you shall have. In other words, I am going to be your possession. You're going to have me as your God. Now, that means you can't make me what you want. That's idolatry, number two. That means you got to live in a responsive way toward my, of my character, not in the way that you see fit. That's name in vain. You have to honor the Sabbath, spend a day with me worshiping, not working, not focusing on you, focusing on our relationship and resting in me. Honor your father and mother ties to the first commandment. Why? Because God, the, the image of authority in our life first in our life is our parents. And then number six through nine relate to the last commandment, which again, I, I, Differ with Dennis Prager here on this. I believe it is the second of two commandments that are dealing with your thought. So you shall not covet. Now, if we have God, okay, and look at this. This is important. If we have God, it eliminates wanting what others have. See, that's the premise for the whole study. But if we have, if we know we have God and we keep God first, it eliminates this inordinate desire to have what other people have. And that's why I think there is a parallel here between the first and the last commandment. And I want to put a little dividing line here because I think the first commandment, uh, that's the one that governs the first five commandments. So if you've got God first, you relate to God properly in the first table of the law, but then the last table of the law are undergirded by the 10th commandment, meaning that if you can if you can get covetous desire under wraps, you will see yourself not steal, not lie, not adult, not commit adultery, and not um, um, murder. Okay, that's kind of like a cool um, parallelism there of the 10 commandments, even the order. Like it's so cool how God's word comes alive, right? Even the order is intentional. Where is it seen in the Bible? 
guess what, guys? It's seen right when sin enters the world. So it's the predicate. It's the predicate for all the other commandments being broken. Let's go to the text. Deuteronomy, Genesis chapter 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired. The very same word for coveting in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 in the commandment is the same Hebrew word here for desired in Genesis 3, 6. The, the woman coveted the fruit. And she took it and she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. So there was coveting involved in the very first sin. Uh, that speaks volumes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and we cannot afford to miss it. But it's not where it happened first. And this is important. The reason why the woman coveted the fruit that she shouldn't have eaten was because she was told to covet the fruit that she shouldn't have eaten by who? By Satan. Satan is the fallen angel Lucifer. Uh, he is talked about in Isaiah chapter thir uh, 14. This is uh, the I wills statement of Lucifer, the uh, cherub, uh, the uh, you could call him a fiery cherub, seraphim, if you will, who stood in the council of God. I believe he was one of three archangels. There's Gabriel, there's Michael, there was Lucifer. Lucifer was in charge of the singing and the worship of heaven. We, can, we don't have time to go into that tonight, but anyway, what happened with Lucifer? He was first amongst the archangels. He was created first. Uh, he was beautiful. He was displayed with uh, raiment, glorious raiment and uh, jewels and, and uh, rubies and sapphires and all the precious jewels, but it wasn't enough. And Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 says, you said in your heart, and there it is. It's a thought. It's a thought before it's an action. Coveting is the thought that leads to the action. Get this one under control. You will live a very peaceful life. It says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens uh, above the stars of God. I will sit. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, this prophecy is a two-pronged prophecy. It is directed at the king of Tyre in Isaiah's day, but it is, it is also directed toward a cosmic enemy, a cosmic king, a Lucifer, who was cast out of heaven because he coveted. Now, think about that. He lost what he had because he coveted. And how many people think, if I covet, if I want, if I just go for it, if I go and get it, then I will be happy and I will be blessed and everything will be mine and I will live happy. And that's not true. Actually, the scriptures are going to teach us again and again and again that the people who did not get coveting under control lost everything that they had. That is a very important distinction. Now, Jesus, uh, we talk about this on the study repeatedly, and we dealt with it with murder, with adultery, and with um, lying, that Jesus elevates the law. He does not diminish the law. We think that uh, grace is a license to sin. That's not true. When Jesus shows up, he shows us the full ex, uh, expression of the law. So he, what does he do with uh, adultery? He says, okay, I'm going to elevate that. We're not just going to talk about the physical touch of another woman uh, 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 that is not your wife or somebody else's wife. We're going to talk about the, the thought, the lusting, the coveting of that woman. He does this with uh, murder. We're not just going to talk about actually taking a knife and stabbing your brother. We're talking about just being angry at him, which leads to murder. So Jesus is always uncovering, right? This is what he does. He's always peeling back the layers of the law so that we can see God's truest intention. Well, he does that with coveting in Matthew chapter six. And it's probably a text that you think, this has nothing to do with coveting. What are you talking about? That's nothing to do with coveting. Okay, I will tell you that it does. Let me go to the text. Um, there's something called Christian coveting. <laughs> there is. Christian coveting is when we want things and we just put a Christian glaze on them. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, verse 1. What does he say? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others. Notice the phrase here, the qualifier, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, of course, we can covet to get things um, you know, illegally or, or, you know, less than reputably or, you know, sinfully, but, but we can also covet things that seem very pure, such as the Pharisees did, such as the religious leaders did in Jesus's day, where they said, you know, we're going to, we're going to do these acts of righteousness. We're going to give big money. We're going to pray long prayers. We're going to have these garments of, you know, religious reputation on our bodies so that we can be seen. They, what were they now underneath all of that presentation was a thought was what was going on up in here. And they were saying to themselves, we need the praise of men. We need the approval of others. And so this is why I put here that coveting can be 
a subconscious Christian looking activity when we do Christian things for the approval of others. And some of you are like, wow, I never even thought about that in my own life, but it's so true. We can all do that. When we try to act more spiritual than we are, we are really actually coveting a better reputation than we really have. And by the way, this is what repels people from the faith. It does not attract people to the faith. How many non-Christians do you know want nothing to do with Christianity because they have met people who are actually not as good as they say they are? See, I don't like to talk about how good I am. I'd rather talk about how bad I am. I want to be in the in the in the vein of apostle of the apostle Paul who said, "Look, um, I'm no better than anybody else. I, I'm just as bad as you. I, I'm." A sinner. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy who needs Jesus. I do things that I can't understand. And he says this again and again uh, throughout the scriptures in the, uh, in the writings of uh, the Apostle Paul. We see a man who is well aware of his failures and he is showing off his, his weakness. What does he say? So that Christ's strength might be perfected in him. Now, there's another place where Jesus deals with coveting, and it is a straight-out repudiation of a guy who did not have the money, okay? And that is a very important qualifier. Jesus did not play this game that we see played out in our political discourse today, which is that only rich people are covetous and greedy. Only rich people are the greedy ones. And so, you know, the greedy corporate executives, the greedy uh, Wall Street uh, hedge, fund man, hedge fund managers, the greedy, you know, business leaders, or the greedy, whatever you want to say, Hollywood moguls, They got greed because they have so much money. Jesus did not say that. Actually, many wealthy people have no greed in their heart. They're generous. They're givers. They are benefactors. Uh, Abraham was a wealthy man. David was a wealthy man. These people gave to the kingdom in exorbitant amounts. Solomon, case could be made that he started out not greedy, got greedy at the end. Um, So Jesus is asked this question in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd, verse 13 says, teacher to Jesus, teacher Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus just kind of rebukes him right out. Man, who made me a judge arbiter over you? Then he said to him, take care. And look at this line. Oh, this line is so powerful. Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Now that little phrase all is important because there are different kinds of covetousness that I don't think many people are aware of. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to point out here. There is the covetousness of you think that you deserve something that other people have simply because they have it. They have too much. They have more than you. So now I deserve that. This is where socialism comes from. This is where communism comes from. This is where, and history backs me up here, every totalitarian regime takeover or revolution from the French Revolution to Mao's China to Hitler's youth to the uh, Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, this is the underlayment for the political upheavals that re-engineered society by riling up the have-nots to violently kill the haves. In fact, Christopher Nolan, a brilliant filmmaker, does a great job of portraying this in his Batman series, the third uh, installment of that series, Dark Knight Rises. Watch the movie because it basically is a tale of two cities um, retold in the Batman genre, which is brilliant storytelling, by the way. And in fact, he, he quotes a tale of two cities at the end. It is a far, far better place that I go than I have ever been. And it's a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. And you have this representation that this this story is not new it is it needs to be retold again and again in every generation because you can be greedy and poor and that's exactly what Jesus talks about but he talks about this to a man who does not have the money by talking about a man who did have the money and he told this parable of a man who you know his pr- land produced plentifully and he just thought what am i going to do i have nowhere to steer my crops and he builds bigger barns and he says Now I'm going to store up all this stuff and I'm going to say to my soul, you know, be happy. You've got many things laid up for many years. But God said tonight, your soul is required of you. And who's going to get what you have laid up for yourself? And then he says, this is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. A basic underlying theme here from Jesus is coveting is not something that just the the struggle, the, 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 the rich struggle with. It's everybody's struggle. It's my struggle. It's your struggle. It's all of our struggles. Now, let's talk about Paul, because Paul makes that clear. This is how Paul came to the reality of what the law actually does. 
Paul was a Pharisee and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he says, the, the commandment that got me, you know, Pharisees prided themselves on their tithing, their ritualistic practices, their legalistic obedience to the law, their traditions over even the law itself. And Paul says that coveting is where my self-confidence in my religious performance collapsed. And by the way, for everybody listening to me, listen closely here. You don't meet Jesus truly until your self-righteousness collapses. Your self-righteousness has to collapse. It has to be crushed under the weight of the law. That is how you come to Christ. And so many people think coming to Christ is just a moralistic improvement system. No, it is not. So many people think coming to Christ is when you just you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and, and start believing God instead of living for yourself. No, it is not. Coming to Christ is when you are defeated, destroyed, demolished in your self-righteousness by the law, the weightiness, the heaviness of the law. You realize you cannot do it. You realize you are not a good person. And when you realize that you turn to the one who is a good person and was a good person for your sake, who fulfilled the law on your behalf, who is the end of the law for all who believe, Romans chapter 12 says this, and you bow the knee to him. That is how you come to Christ. And Paul uh, illustrates that here in Romans chapter uh, 7. Let's take a look at it. He says in verse 7 of Romans 7, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. Notice that Paul writes about that law. He says, I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you, not, you shall not covet. But sin, that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law, sin dies. But I, and, and he says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now he is unpacking his personal testimony here. He is unpacking the fact that we are all going to be uh, crushed by this one commandment. Coveting is the underlayment for breaking all the other sins. Uh, so important too, because you think about Paul the Apostle, when he says that I, I saw that coveting came alive, it, it, it produced sin in me, produced all kinds of covetous desires in me. Well, what, what do you think that a zealous, you know, fundamentalist, legalistic Pharisee would covet? Just ask yourself that question. And if you have quick hands, type it in the comments. What do you think? a legalistic, self-righteous Pharisee covets. Like he's, he doesn't steal, right? He doesn't take other people's property. He knows that's, he knows that's wrong. He knows he shouldn't commit adultery. He knows that's wrong. But what do you think that he would covet? And I thought about this, and I have a note in my Bible about this, that the thing that Paul would have coveted more than anything is self-righteousness. He would have loved to be thought of as a moral upstanding member of society, because that's how you get ahead in the Pharisaic mindset, in the Pharisaic community, is they wanted to outdo each other with their righteous acts and their righteous living. And so he, he, he illustrates what Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, that you can even do good things for selfish reasons. I call it on this channel all the time, sanctified selfishness. Be careful that you don't fall into that as a Christian because we can do good things with the wrong reason, with the wrong intentions. Okay, I'm only at number one. Let's get to number two on the outline. What it is not, and this is important, please do not confuse coveting with all desire, and this is so important. The commandment does not end at the word covet. It doesn't. It doesn't say thou shalt not covet, as in to say thou shalt not desire. I love what Adrian Rogers said about this. He said, when God saves you, he doesn't make you passionless. I love that. God does not make you desire-free when you become a Christian. There are good and healthy desires that you should have as a Christian. You should, you should desire a spouse. You should desire children. You should desire a home. I mean, you shouldn't desire nothing. That's Buddhism. Don't confuse the religions. Uh, God, God wants to give good things to you. And the scriptures tell us to pray about everything. In James chapter 4, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. We have to ask. We have to, because this is not a crime, it is not a sin to have desires for good things. You should want friends. Jesus desired, Mark chapter 3 tells us this, he desired the 12 apostles to follow him, the 12 disciples to follow him. He desired to eat the Passover with them. So it is not the elimination of desire as if we become Buddhists. Absolutely not. Desire is even a good thing. 
But here's a great qualifier about this, okay? And C.S. Lewis does this treatment in Mere Christianity. He says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. He says, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others, end quote, C.S. Lewis. Phenomenal quote. Because that's exactly the line. That's the line that we need to be aware of. Do you want that? Do you want a wife? Good. But are you just looking for a wife that's better looking than all your friends' wives? <laughs> because before you know it, that could lead you to the wrong wife, right? You, you, you want a house, and that is a good, that is a good thing. It is a, it is a necessary uh, object to have to raise a family, to sleep, to you know, live, basically, but are you only wanting a house that is bigger than your brothers or bigger than your cousins or bigger than your neighbors? Now you've crossed the line from uh, just desiring to coveting because you have now lived maybe even subconsciously through them and um, in a competitive mindset against them to measure your life only valuable because you have more than them or something bigger than them. You see, that's where covetousness leads. And so it, that's not what it is. It is not, but back to the point, it is not just wanting, okay? Because again, the commandment does not end at you shall not covet. It's you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants, your neighbor's ox, your, no your neighbor's donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So let's just walk this through. You can admire someone's car. You haven't coveted. You can go to the store and, and, and look at the car you haven't coveted. You can buy the car. You can drive the car home. You can bring the car out to the driveway and invite the whole family. Come and look at my car. You can even call your neighbor who inspired you to buy the car and say, hey, I just got the same car as you. You still haven't coveted. You haven't coveted yet at all. But the moment that you start thinking, well, I'm going to get the better car because I need to be better than him or I, I, I'm going to get his car. Now, watch out. That's what we're talking about. Too many Christians are subconsciously Buddhists and not Christians because they think that Christianity is the elimination of all desire. So that's not what coveting is. Okay, let's go to number three. What does it look like? And we're going to look at some biblical examples. And the first example that comes to mind, as it should probably come to your mind, of course, we've already talked about Lucifer. We've talked about Eve, but let's talk about Samson. Samson is perhaps the archetype of the Old Testament coveter in chief, right? It says that he went down to Timnah and Timnah he saw, and that's where coveting always starts, one of the daughters of the Philistines. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now get her for me as my wife. Notice the text is very, very clear that his character is off here. Now get her. You don't do that to your parents. You don't tell you, go get me her. Right? This is not how a man acts. This is not a good character. And his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our own people that you must get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to her, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. That is a huge phrase because Samson is an indictment of the nation of Israel at this stage in their life. The theme of Judges is that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. So Samson, when you read the, the story of Samson, yes, he is a historical figure. Yes, it is a true narrative. But number three, it is a picture indicting Israel for their spiritual reality. This is where they were. And I thought about this. When it says here in the text, um, that she is right in my own eyes. This is the days of the judges. The judges had no king. Therefore, people did whatever they wanted. And I thought about it. This is the re revelation that the Lord gave me, even in preparing this talk. How many know pastors took his revelations from the Lord through his word? They had no king. They desired whatever they wanted. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. Coveting is the fruit of a kingless Christianity. Coveting is the fruit of a kingless Christianity. I wish I had that on the screen, but I don't think I have that on the screen. No. Um, when Christ is not king. And you say, well, I thought Christ is automatically my king. Not necessarily so. See, see, a lot of Christians have Christ as buddy, partner, you know, life coach, but he's not king. Kings tell people what to do. Kings own things. Kings own people. Kings own and run kingdoms. 
Is Jesus owning you? Does he own, does he have authority over you? Because that is when he is king. When he is over you and an authority over you and owns you and owns everything around you and everything that you think you own, you know, is actually his. Now he is king. And if you want to stay away from coveting, it starts with setting Christ up as king in your life. My car is not my car. It is Christ's car. My kids are not my kids. They are Christ's kids. My house is not my house. It is Christ's house. Everything is God's. That's Psalm 24, verse one. Okay, Samson. So we all know the Sam story. Uh, of Samson. Eventually his coveting leads him to blindness because he is completely um, manipulated by Delilah. She asks him the secret of his strength. He gives her three wrong answers. She does all three things. He's not waking up. He's just blinded by his covetous desire. Eventually he is enslaved. Hair is cut off and he is bound in the prison of the Philistines and he is grinding grain. So the famous preacher line is sin blinds you, binds you, and grinds you. Sin binds you, blinds you, binds you, and grinds you. And it starts where? It starts with covetousness. Let's go to number two in the narrative of the book, uh, of the Bible. I think Achan is a great example. Joshua chapter seven, on the heels of the uh, uh, conquest of Jericho, God had said to them, devote everything to destruction. Every, every object, every a gold item, uh, every man, woman, and child, this nation has not repented for 400 years. You're going to be my object of judgment. They go in, they destroy it. Well, there's a guy named Achan who sees, uh, the Bible says he broke faith with regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And then when they finally find out what happens, because they go and they, they try to fight another battle and they lose the battle that they fought after um, Jericho in Ai, Joshua is mortified. He can't believe that they lost the battle. What's going on? I thought God was going to give us the land. And God says, look, stop calling out to me and stop crying. Israel has sinned. And they go out and they find out that this guy had taken his, his uh, the Babylonian garment. And look with me, if you will, at uh, verse 20 and 21 of this chapter, because it's so brilliant how the biblical text exposes coveting for us in this text. Achan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord of Israel the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw, again, it's a thought, among the spoils of a, a beautiful cloak from Shinar. By the way, Shinar is the plain where they built the Tower of Babel. He says, when I saw a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And you just have to kind of like listen to the text speaking in ways that is not just coming out and saying it. The saddest part of the story of Achan is that he couldn't even show off the things that he had coveted because he knew he had taken them wrongly. You know, you're coveting when you can't, you know, you can't share this with people because it's just, you got it illicitly. You got it illegally. Then, you know, you're coveting and you think about this. Achan took this beautiful garment and buried it in the dirt. How many know dirt messes up beautiful garments, but it is a beautiful picture really of what coveting does. It, it destroys our souls, but it destroys our stuff. We lose it in the end. So you have Samson. He loses his eyesight, his wisdom, his spiritual insight. He loses his, you know, uh, emotional capacity to discern or I'm sorry, his spiritual capacity to discern what Delilah is doing. You see Achan, he loses the very thing that he coveted. And then here's the, here is the number one, the winner of the all-time worst coveter in human history. Can you guess his name? All-time greatest coveter in, uh, not, not Satan. We've already talked about that. Not Eve. We've already talked about them. This is the greatest coveter in human history. Do you know his name? You need to, you need to know his name. His name is Judas. Judas is the all-time greatest coveter in human history. First off, let's talk, take a look at John chapter 12. Uh, this is a picture of coveting. When the woman named Mary comes and anoints Jesus' feet with oil, and it says it's a very expensive uh, jar of perfume, and it was worth a year's wages, we hear this from Judas's lips. Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? John 12, 5. And given to the poor. Uh, uh, coveting always has this um, facade of concern for others, doesn't it? It can, not always, but sometimes it's <laughs> he, he doesn't care about the poor. And John makes sure we know that he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So what was Judas's problem? He wanted what was not his. 
He helped himself to the money bag. Okay, when he goes to betray Jesus, Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me in order that I may deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Notice what coveting does in Judas's life. Um, he, he becomes hypercritical of people's love for the Lord. Uh, he feigns religiosity and care for the poor. And then he's opportunistic, not for doing things for God, but for doing things for himself. And I think that is one of the, these are the three, you know, detrimental effects of coveting on our life. We start to think, okay, how can I leverage God's work for my own glorification? How can I become better through, through Jesus? Instead of thinking, how can I serve others so that they're better for Jesus? And that is where we see Judas. So moving on in his story. Uh, this is important. And again, revelation that I had never seen before. There is an order of events in Judas's life. So he used to steal from the treasury. Then he sees Mary pouring out the oil on Jesus' feet and he feigns religiosity. And then he goes to opportunistically betray Jesus for money. Now look at this passage. It says in Luke 22, verse one, this is at the Lord's Supper. Now the feast of unleavened bread was near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people Verse three, then Satan entered Judas. Then Satan entered Judas. Wow, 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 wow. Unbelievable text here. Because I never, I had never seen this before, but there is a order to the events. And he is covetous all the way through, growing more so toward the end, that John 12 passage is toward the end of Jesus' ministry. And now he is, um, letting Satan in. So let me put this on the screen. So it, it, just to clarify. So first he stole from the treasury, then he looked for a self-centered opportunity, and then he was filled with Satan. And here's the, here's the big takeaway. It's going to be, it's going to pinch, but it's necessary. Coveting is a pathway for Satan into your life. And some of you have never thought about this before. You've never thought, oh, it, you know, it's just, I, I, I got this thing where I just kind of get a little bit jealous of my, you know, brother or my sister or my cousin or my nephew or my friend or my neighbor. Well, watch out, because before you know it, Satan has a foothold in your life. When, it, when Jesus said, be on your guard, he never said that about witchcraft. He never said that about sorcery. He never said that about um, adultery. He never said that about any of the other commandments. He said it about greed. He said it about envy. He said it about covetousness. That should tell you something about this commandment, because, and this is why we're doing a whole episode on this one. It's big and it shapes us to break all the other commandments and it gives the devil a foothold and really a stranglehold on our life. So we've talked about uh, where it, what it is, what it's not, what it looks like, where it starts. Let's do number four. Where does covetousness start? I got a couple of points on this matter. Number one, it starts with social comparison. When you are looking at people and you're saying, wow, look at their life. I wish I had that life and I want that life. Now, again, like I said, there is a difference. There is a line that you cross between just wanting it to coveting it and trying to get it through less than righteous means. Okay. So there's this book I read on money. Phenomenal book It's called the psychology of money by uh, Morgan Housel. Here's the illustration. I'm going to put this on the screen. The illustration that it gives. He says, consider a rookie baseball player who earns $500,000 a year. He is by any definition rich. But say he plays on the same team as Mike Trout, who has a 12-year, $430 million contract. By comparison, the, rook the rookie is broke. But then think about Mike Trout. $36 million per year is an insane amount of money. But to make it on the top list of the top 10 highest paid hedge fund managers in 2018, you need to earn at least $340 million in one year. That's who people like Mike Trout might compare themselves to or their incomes to. And the hedge fund manager who makes $340 million per year compares himself to the top five hedge fund managers who earned at least $770 million a year in 2018. Those top managers can look ahead to people like Warren Buffett, whose per personal fortune increased by $3.5 billion in 2018. And someone like Warren Buffett could look ahead to Jeff Bezos, whose net worth increased by $24 billion in 2018. The point <laughs> it's such a great point that Morgan Housel makes in this uh, illustration is that it never ends. It never ends. We just keep moving the goalposts when it comes to our lives. 
And in the in that chapter on coveting, he says, you got to stop moving the goalposts. You've got to stop moving the goalposts in your life. I will be happy when I have their life. So that's number one, when it comes to where covetousness starts, social comparison. Then I believe number two, future obsessed, which is the little statement that we make to ourselves all the time. When I have this, then I'll be blank. When I have a wife, when I have children, when I have this, when I have that, when I have that. Future obsessed people, instead of saying, what do you have now? Let us be content today. Uh, another way that we get covetous and we don't even realize it is past regrets. And I want to bring you to Ecclesiastes 7.10, which says, don't say, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you say this. Um, past regrets will bury you in your present blessings. The, 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 the idea, I wish I could go back. I wish I could. No one can go back. And I, I, I want to know <laughs> how many people need to hear this. You cannot put an old head on young shoulders. You can't go back in time. No one can. By the way, if we could, if everybody could, then everybody would be way better off because everybody knows the mistakes that they made. You can't live in the past. And I think that sometimes we live covetously because we keep thinking, well, if I hadn't gone to that school, well, if I hadn't married that person, well, if I hadn't made that friend, and before you know it, your past is just pausing you in your present. And you don't even realize that the root of it all is because you want a better life. Number four, prayerless living. Uh, when James says, you, you do not have because you do not ask God. That's James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. You, you know, when we don't pray, when we don't give God our prayers, our needs, our requests. Bible says, uh, cast all your anxieties upon God for he cares for you. The Bible says in Philippians, pray about everything with supplication, thanksgiving. Make a request known to God. It's, it's okay to ask for what you want, but pray and seek God. You know, in prayer, you might not get the answer you want, but at least you could talk it out with God. You could talk it out with God and wrestle out with God and leave it in his um, hand as to where you're going to go. Number uh, five, victimhood mindset leads to covenant. This is where socialism and Marxism comes from. The why them and not me. God must be mad at me. Life is not fair. Why should they get all the blessings and I don't have? Uh, Karl Marx never had a paid job in his life. He was a bum. He lived off his friend, Frederick Engels. Nobody tells you this stuff. They all just think he's a brilliant, you know, uh, social engineer. He was a schlub. He was a liar. He, he was the biggest layabout you can imagine. And he is not to be at all regarded as the hero that people make him out to be. Uh, pride is the last one. I deserve better than them. So you've got to be on your guard against all of these mindsets because these mindsets are rooted in covetousness. I deserve better than them. This is the Karl Marx mindset. By the way, uh, as a fun project, I went to ChatGPT and I asked about Karl Marx and they gave me all the shtick, the typical shtick of Karl Marx. He was a, uh, you know, important thinker and writer and blah, 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 blah. So I wrote, because I've, I've studied up on Karl Marx, I've read biographies. And <laughs> so I wrote, and you can see it there. Yeah, but he was a lazy slouch who bummed off his famous friend, uh, his friend, Mr. Engels. What about that? And ChatGPT does does work, does yeoman's work for the socialists here. Well, the characterization of Karl Marx as a lazy slouch who relied on his friend on, on Frederick Engels for financial support is a perspective often presented by critics. And literally, ChatGPT is doing work to make sure that they protect the reputation of the person who is perhaps the, the responsible for more bloodshed in the 19th century than any other person in human history. And it really was covetousness. That's the point that I'm making. I'm not trying to do a political talk show here. That's the deep end. That's last night. But I am talking about how this ideology has pervasively invaded our culture. And victimhood is destroying young people. It is destroying our universities. It is destroying families because we have this hierarchy of victimhood that if you're a victim, then you have a louder voice. We talked about that on the deep end last night. I hope you checked it out. Okay, let's go to what coveting does. Okay, what does it do? Well, number one, when we covet, we tell ourselves we deserve better. That's pride. Number two, we tell ourselves others don't deserve it. That's also pride. So, you know, the coveting is a conversation with yourself. Go back for a second to Luke chapter 12. I can do this right here on the screen because it is, yeah, it's in my notes right now. When Jesus says that the, rich, the land of the rich man produced plentifully, Look at the phraseology of the parable. He thought to himself, 
And then he just has this conversation with himself. What shall I do? I have nowhere. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down. He's not he's not hiring contractors. He's not talking to his wife. He's not telling his children I'm going to make life better for us. No, it's I, 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 I. And the last thing that he says is what? And I will say to my soul, he is still having a conversation with himself. I will say to my soul, uh, you have many ample goods uh, laid up for many years. And he's talking to himself still saying, relax, eat, drink and be merry. Man, what a pitcher. Jesus, the master storyteller, friends. He knows how to pack truth into one parable. Back to my points is we are having a conversation with ourselves when we covet. Um, let's go further. Number three, we tell our we tell ourselves God doesn't care, and that's idolatry. That's breaking the first commandment and the second commandment. When we covet, we are saying God doesn't care because we are we are repeating to ourselves Satan's lie to Eve, God is holding out on you. God knows that if you eat, you will be like him. And, you know, he's real jealous and he's a real, you know, uh, egotist. And so he needs to be just like only himself. And then lastly, we tell ourselves other people are the competition. This is how we estrange ourselves. Uh, good, good, a good point could be made that a lot of our social estrangement is rooted in covetousness. These phones give us 24 hours access into other people's lives so that we can compare ourselves and we can blame others or we can criticize others or we can judge others from afar. And then we can estrange ourselves from other people because why them and not me? And before you know it, we are coveting what other people have been blessed with instead of thanking God for the blessings that he has poured out into our lives. There is a whole host of medical research about this, the causation between envy and depression. This study uh, studied 260 undergraduate students at two time points in life spaced 14 months apart on the level of their envy. Envy is another word for coveting. Uh, this is from a Chinese college or university, so take it for what, that, for, for what it's worth. But they, they found through the study of 260 undergraduates that envy positively predicted, look at this, depression, uh, d uh, depression did not predict envy. That is a huge finding. Envy produces depression. Depression does not produce envy. Some, some people don't want to deal with the real root of the depression. They just want a pill. They just want someone to fix it. But how many of us need to do a deep um, introspective, a deep search of our heart? God, search me and know me, the psalmist says. See if there be any unfitting way in me. Let me know what's going on in my heart, Lord God. There might be things that are leading to my depression, to my anxiety. Th let me go there. Anxiety, the psychological effects of uh, envy. The amygdala, amygdala is responsible. That's the little center part of your brain in the middle, right near the stem of the brain. It is responsible for emotions, and it plays a role in both gratitude and anxiety. You can use your amygdala to be grateful, or you can use your amygdala to be resentful and covetous. So guess what? We're gonna eat, I'm going to give you a hint as to how, how do we conquer envy uh, or covetousness, we do it through gratitude. And that brings me to how to defeat covetousness. Yeah, we're doing great on time. I'm glad I'm getting through this content this quickly and this concisely. Anyway, maybe you don't think so, but I think so. <laughs> Conquering covetousness. Uh, I think about Philippians as the roadmap. Philippians is a, a thank you letter from Paul to the church in Philippi because they supplied his needs many times as he ministered the gospel in many other areas. And it was one of only uh, like two churches that ever gave him any money and financial support for the mission. And you just read through it. And it is a it is a, um, a doctoral thesis on how to overcome covetousness and find contentment. Uh, number one, in verse 18, he says, about the false, the the the, the self-centered preachers who are preaching Christ for their own glorification. He says, what then? Only that in every way Christ is preached. So here's how we conquer envy according to the Philippians roadmap. Number one, Christ first. I don't care what I have in my life as long as Christ is glorified in it. And it doesn't mean I don't want anything. I can want a lot of things and I can aim at getting a lot of things, but I want Christ to be glorified in all my things. So Christ first, right? That's Philippians 1.18. Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. Like having heaven as your home is the way to conquer covetousness so that I don't lose when I die. I gain. I get a life that is unparalleled in the next life. Uh, number three, Philippians 2, 3, when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. Here's number three for how to be, defeat covetousness. Help someone else. Do kindness. By the way, there's another study. I don't know if I have it. I might have it in the notes. 
where acts of kindness help you sleep better and relieve stress and make you a happier person and a less obviously covetous person. And that's exactly what Paul is prescribing here in the Philippians road to a more content, less covetous life. Philippians 3, 6, he says, zeal, persecuted the church, righteousness under law, blameless. And he gets to that point where he talks about how his righteousness from God is greater than the righteousness that he earned of his own self. Uh, the verse is probably off for this fourth point. Um, later verses in Philippians 3 would more um, would be more appropriate for this uh, point that I'm making. But what, what I'm talking about here is that understanding that you have been made right with God is a way to conquer covetousness in your life. Philippians 4, for rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice. How do we conquer covetousness? We rejoice in God. We worship him. We take our eyes off of our lives. We get to church. We gather with the God's, we, with God's people. We sing the songs. We enter into worship. We take joy in the Lord. Number, uh, what are we on? Number one, two, three, four, five, six which is how we learn through the situations of life. As Paul says in Philippians 4, 11, I am not speaking from need. I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the text, the phrase that just jumped on the off the page for me today was this. I know how to be brought low. I, I know how to be brought low. Do you know how to be brought low? That's a, that's, a, that's a skill that people need to learn. You need to learn that sometimes God brings you low so that he can lift you up. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in due season, he will lift you up. He will exalt you in due season. And he's kind of subjective to his events here, right? I know how to be brought low. I know that God is sometimes working through the difficult situations to you know, eradicate from me uh, harmful inclinations. And that is an important philosophy. It's the roadmap to a very uh, content life. Uh, so this study from Psychology Today really caught my eye. Gratitude helps curve, curb anxiety. And I think about it. Covetousness leads to depression, definitely leads to, leads to anxiety because anxiety is rooted in the idea that you won't have or you could lose, or you might miss out, or you might suffer harm. That's where anxiety it lives. But if you take time to be great, Thankful, <laughs> sorry, grateful for the things that you have, you will reduce anxiety in your life. This study by uh, Dr. Daniel Cripps describes the way that gratitude can help reduce anxiety in youth. And she writes, a school-based gratitude diary intervention could be an effective way to promote school belonging and reduce anxiety in youth population. In other words, sit down kids and write down the things that are good in your life because then you will see that you will be far healthier. I looked up another, uh, or our research team, our crack research team on the Tim Hatch Live channel, looked up another article from positivepsychology.com, the neuroscience of gratitude and effects on the brain. And what does it do? It releases toxic emotions from the brain. Uh, number two, it reduces pain. It improves sleep. Number three, number four, it aids in stress regulation. Number five, it reduces anxiety and depression. If you stop worrying about what you want or could have had, or what other people have that you think you deserve and they don't deserve, you will be a less stressed, less anxious, less depressed person. Isn't that amazing? This commandment was definitely worth a whole episode. I'm just saying. Okay, so biblically speaking, conquering covetousness, uh, two passages of scripture that I want to give you, and that is 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, and I know what you're saying, pastor, I'm not rich. I am a middle-class American. Okay, if you are a lower-class American, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. You are. Most of the world lives on like $3 a day, okay? You are rich if you are a lower class American. So this passage is for you. As for the rich, and that is the average American in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us. And I love the, that phrase. He does provide us with everything to enjoy. God wants you to enjoy life. That's not a sin. Then do good. Be rich in good works. Be kind. Be generous. Ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future. <clears throat> so we conquer covetousness by knowing that God richly provides. And number two, we remember that God never leaves. That's Hebrews 13 verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for you. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is how we conquer covetousness. So summing up, summing up our 10 commandments series as a kind of a subset series of the Torah study. 10 words in joining God's creation. Remember 10 fingers, 
10 words. Oh, I saw this. Do we have time? I do have time. I saw this cool way to remember the Ten Commandments, and I saw it once, and it was on YouTube. So I'm going to try it without rehearsing it. I did not plan to do this, but I saw it, and it comes to me. Let's see if I can do it. How do I remember the Ten Commandments? Number one, God is first. You put one. Uh, number two, no images. See how that images the other? There you go. That's the Second Commandment. Number three, put a guard over my mouth because I do not want to take His name in vain. Number four, you put a pillow under your head and you sleep. You don't, re you rest on the Sabbath day. Amen. <laughs> Some of these are kind of corny. Number five is honor your father and mother. Here's how you remember that one. Ready? There you go. Number six. Uh, what was number six? Oh, you do this. And number six is you put a hand up per a person and you hold a knife and you stab them. <laughs> That's how you remember. Do not murder. Number seven. Think about it this way is like you're axing. Two people who are together, put two fingers up, and with the other hand, you slice between them. Don't commit adultery. Number eight, put your hand like this, and it grabs the other three fingers, and you rip them off. Don't steal. Number nine, you have four fingers on one hand, you have five fingers on the other. Inequal weights, uh, perjury, unequal justice when you lie. And then number 10, all fingers out. Coveting is grabbing what belongs to another. Hey, maybe try that with the kids tonight after the deep dive. You're welcome, although I stole that from another pastor. So, full disclosure. Okay. Ten words joining God in creation. No one's closer. No image to diminish him. No living as if he wasn't God. Uh, no endless work, but a goal-oriented pursuit of joy. Establish a culture of honor with those who came before you. Number six, no damaging the image of God through murder. No infidelity. No disrespect of private property. No falsehood. And then finally, number ten, be thankful for what God gives you. And guys and girls, let me just say something. The greatest thing that God gives you is the gift of himself. That's the greatest thing he gives you. Uh, there's one more, one, more, one more passage I want to put up here on the screen just to give you just more word. Amen. More word, Lord. Psalm 145, verse 14. The Lord upholds all those who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. Look at this verse 16 of Psalm 145. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Desire is not wrong. It is not sin. It is how we live with it. And let us desire God because his presence in, his, in our life is the greatest gift he can give us. Okay, that's the episode. Guys, support the Bible study through the Cash app. And notice that this says support the Bible study, not the channel. Because last night on the deep end, we introduced membership plan to the Tim Hatch Live community, and I am already getting memberships, and I'm so excited. Thank you guys so much for signing up. Some of you have signed up, and I want to just put these up on the screen a little bit bigger than last night. We got the basic community package. Uh, 10 questions with Tim is going to be free, okay? So although it says it's still in this graphic that um, 10 questions with Tim is part of the basic plan, that's going to be free. I'm not going to... We're not going to put that behind a paywall. The Bible study will always be free. It will never be behind the paywall. And the entire Bible study, the deep dive Bible study, will always be free forever. Never going to ask you for money. Uh, I would ask for your financial support so that we can pay the bills for Tim Hatch Live. It's not for my salary. It is for the salary and the help of paying all the research assistants and all the people that put this stuff together. Um, so, but if you're in the membership plans, the standard and the, and the premium, you can see it on the screen there. They're, they were talked about on the deep end last night. And if you would be so kind to join the team, I'm already getting some people on the Discord server. And the, the Discord server, I'm really excited about because we're going to have some chats. We're going to have some back and forth. And uh, for those of you who are deep enders, you love the deep end and you love to send me content of stuff that you wish that I could talk about. Well, I get it from like my assistant. I'll get it from a friend of a friend who knows me. I'll get it from one of our pastors on our church's staff and I'll get it through Instagram or Twitter or all these. Okay, stop that. I'm asking you, please stop it and join the Tim Hatch Live membership community, get on the Discord server and send me. We've already set up a page where you can send me things that you want me to talk about on the D-Vent or maybe even on the Deep Dive. But that is a way that you can help us go forward because we've got big plans for the channel, big plans for the organization, Tim Hash Live. And we want to bless way more people than just us. Not so that I can be big, but so that God can get big in people's lives. Another way you can support the channel, like, share, subscribe. 
as we always do. Back with the deep end on Tuesday night at 7.30. This Tuesday, can't wait. And then we had 10 questions with Tim, one Thursday of the month. And it looks like we're going to be doing that on the second Thursday of the month of December. Other than that, that's the show. Guys, I'm so glad that you were here. God bless you. Make sure you leave a like on the video and have a good night. Mm -hmm.